So the computer that records the lessons crashed on Sunday, so I'm sitting here in the chapel this morning re-recording. The lesson Sunday was began with, so how to forgive someone who has hurt us? What is the wisdom of our tradition, our Christian tradition? What is the accumulated human wisdom? And given the brains that we have wired the way that they are, how do we forgive someone who has hurt us? That's where this lesson is going. But before we get actually to forgiveness, it's instructive if we will think a little bit about revenge. Because it turns out, if you want to understand how forgiveness works, you have to understand the revenge instinct that we overcome in order to come into forgiveness. So let's talk a little bit about revenge. Revenge is hardwired into us, which probably isn't surprising to you because you know how it feels. We want people to hurt the way they have made us hurt. We want an offending party to pay. We want them to know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of whatever it is that they just did to us. It's hardwired into our brains. Now, it may be more surprising that the grace instinct, the mercy instinct, the forgiveness instinct, that is also hardwired into our brains. So that's what let's talk about a little bit this morning. So for most of human history, the protections that we take for granted, contracts that ensure parties abide by an agreement, consumer protections that punish fraud and assure that we get what we pay for, food inspectors, making sure that a product contains what it says it contains, those didn't exist when our brains were being shaped by the natural selection mechanism. Nor did laws that would protect us from someone taking our land or killing us or taking our families into slavery. Those protections that we now take for granted are only a blink of an eye old in historical terms. So that means if our brains had not adapted features that helped us survive in that world, the way the world used to be, we wouldn't be here. For generations and generations, our ancestors lived in a world with no law enforcement or courts or prisons, no way to enforce people doing what is good or right or even what we agreed on. So to protect ourselves and to protect our loved ones and our property, the go-to strategy that helped us survive was to put the fear of God into anyone considering harming us. The strategy was to make known far and wide, harm me or harm us and there will be hell to pay. It was in the interest of our genetic pool to cultivate a reputation, don't mess with us. Fear of reprisal was how we created a deterrence. If we harm those hammock people, the wrath of God will come raining down on us, so we better not harm them. And it was an effective enough strategy that it did help us survive. And over time, it got encoded into our brains. And it still sits there firing up pretty frequently, like when we feel an adrenaline surge watching a revenge movie, or when we can't fall asleep at night churning over in our minds how we could get back at someone who hurt us, or when we lash out at someone who says something unkind to us, or when we hold a grudge, or when we withdraw with icy silence, or when we spread gossip about someone. Those natural reactionary responses are inside of us because the world that shaped our brains was organized differently than our world today. And in that context, it was advantageous to mount payback for harm. 
for most of human history, the, whether we paid back or didn't pay back, could mean the difference between survival or death. Even today, when our social systems break down, when the police don't protect or the government doesn't represent us or when the media mistreats, we default back to revenge. It's how we protect ourselves from future harm. We suffer an injustice, and we are flooded with a feeling, thought, chemical algorithm to begin to plot harm to the person who offended us. When we see someone else suffering an injustice, we root for the harmed party to be able to get back. So brain scans of people who watch other people suffer harm, being ridiculed or harassed or insulted, and then when that person that's been harmed is about to uh, achieve some kind of a payback, some kind of a revenge, the brain of the watcher lights up strong, and it lights up in the same part of the brain that lights up when we are thirsty and about to get a drink, or hungry and about to get food. So in a sense, revenge exists deeply inside of us at an instinctive level, the same way that the craving for food or the craving for water exists in us. So that's going on inside of us. And we kind of have to think seriously about that if we're going to listen to Jesus when Jesus says, don't forgive someone seven times, forgive someone 70 times seven times. Because if we realize that the payback instinct is designed to help us avoid future harm and in many ways survive, the words about forgiving become just, just pretty words without any basis in the real world. And as we'll see, often forgiveness isn't taken seriously because that instinctive drive within us is so strong. But a couple of things about Revenge, the limitations of revenge, the liabilities of revenge. First, let's remind ourselves of something we've said in, in previous lessons. Natural selection did not design our brains to find truth. It designed our brains in a hunter-gatherer context to survive and to pass on our genes. And it's because of that that the spiritual tradition has long advocated for more more than our base instincts, more than our chemical-driven feeling reactions. The spiritual tradition has long encouraged us to train ourselves, to use the spiritual disciplines and the spiritual practices to train ourselves, to help us get closer to a bigger picture, to see truths that are truth, truer, reality that is realer, but also our brains aren't wired only for revenge when we are harmed. Let me paint this scenario. Imagine that we are a hunter-gatherer band and we're out there on the savanna and we're hunting for an antelope. And while we're hunting, I fail the group. I let you down. Maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe I was careless. Maybe I was stupid. But the bottom line is I make a serious mistake. And because I do, you get gored in the leg and the antelope gets away, and we lose the food that would have helped us and our children get through the winter. Now, I have just caused you serious harm. And if revenge is the only hardwired strategy inside of us, my failure then will become the criteria by which you treat me. My failure will be the sum total of my being. And you will have no choice then but to default to the revenge algorithm. 
I will probably be banished from the tribe. I will probably be disallowed to hunt with you ever again. And hereafter, I must make it on my own, and I will probably die out there on my own. However, there's a liability to that approach. If I leave the band, the band now has one fewer hunter, one fewer set of hands to uh, put to the well-being of the tribe. And so consequently, it is in the interest of the group and therefore the group's survival that forgiveness is also hardwired into our brains. Now, when we don't take the purpose of revenge seriously and when we hear Jesus' words about forgiving 70 times 7 as pretty words that don't have any meaning rooted in real life, it's common for us to think of forgiveness as the rarefied territory of saints, something that Mother Teresa would do or Desmond Tutu would do. But in fact, forgiveness is simply hardwired into us. Now, it may well be undeveloped, it may be well unaccessed, but there it is, hardwired into us just the way vengeance is hardwired into us. Well, it is difficult to take seriously the ancient wisdom about forgiveness because we don't take revenge and forgiveness as a package deal. We don't really understand forgiveness if we don't understand revenge. And we have tended not to think very deeply about either. And by not treating either seriously, both end up with a bad name. In our minds, because we grew up in church realizing that revenge is a bad thing, we cast it as senseless, just a, a, a raging of the diseased mind, a weakness or an Achilles heel. Or we think of it as a holdover from our animal instincts to be discarded now that we're more developed, that we would leave revenge behind the way that we left spears and flint behind. But again, that perspective is not taking seriously the function of revenge. Now notice, I'm not saying that revenge has a, uh, has a place and that we really ought to honor it. I'm saying it has a function. It served a purpose, and that purpose was to protect us from future harm. And when we dismiss it as brutish and irrelevant, we don't take seriously our need to be protected from future harm. Because remember, it was effective enough to help us in that hunter-gatherer context to survive. It did protect us from harm, and that's how it got encoded into our synapses. But when we have a shallow understanding of revenge, we are not taking seriously how deeply etched it is inside of us. But likewise, when we don't think seriously about forgiveness or grace or mercy, it is just as unhelpful. If, if we think shallowly about those attributes or about forgiveness, then we cast vengeance as a lower form of life and simply assume of grace and forgiveness as some kind of higher form of life. If revenge and payback are holdover disease, then mercy and forgiveness must be a cure but when we treat them that lightly and we miss the function of revenge to keep us safe and to secure our boundaries, forgiveness begins to get diminished because it does go against that survival instinct. No matter how virtuous our saints or our sages make it sound, no one among us is about to surrender survival. And consequently, the best we can muster is lip service for forgiveness. We don't understand the depths to which it goes within us and the efficacy that it brings to the world we live in. 
Consequently, with that lightened version of forgiveness, we don't understand it in any real way. We can't sustain it in any real way because really all it is is pretty words, some lofty ideal that invites us into harm and makes us doormats. So if we're going to take forgiveness seriously, we have to start by realizing the important function that payback serves. The function is to protect us. Now again, revenge is a really bad way of getting that function served, but our need for protection does not go away. Just because some saint or sage tells us that vengeance is bad and forgiveness is good, no, we have to give the function of payback its due. We must be protected. We must survive. We have to honor the need that it once met. Revenge is in us for a reason. But as we've seen with all the brain tricks that we've looked at over the course of this year, in one context, revenge is helpful. But in another context, it can be destructively harmful. So when Jesus says to forgive 70 times 7, or when Paul warns us that if we don't forgive, we get into a cycle we will not be forgiven, or when he tells us that we ought not to be in the business of avenging ourselves, but letting vengeance come from the divine, we sense that there is ancient wisdom in the words, and sometimes, if we're particularly devout, we'll actually try and white-knuckle it. We try to do what it says, but we don't have an understanding of how we would get there. So, here's some thoughts about why we ought to be suspicious of our revenge instincts. Next time, we'll think about how to think more substantively about forgiveness. So, you might remember uh, some discussion that we had about our brain's negativity bias around Thanksgiving. We were having a guided meditation on gratitude. It said something like this, nine good things happen in our lives, one bad thing happens, and our brains tend to focus on the one bad thing. You know that happens. It happens to all of us. Well, that's because in the ancient past, if we focused on nine good things, there would be some benefit to us. We would have a better day. We would have a lighter, more encouraging day. But if we missed one bad thing, and that one bad thing could kill us, then one time out of ten, we died, and we didn't pass along our genes. And so the bad thing focusers had a one in ten advantage over the good thing focusers. And so here we are, this many generations later, carrying in our heads a bad thing focusing instinct. But remember what I said, our brains were not shaped to help us access truth, they were shaped to keep us alive. Well, that same kind of bias kicks in with the revenge forgiveness decision. In nine instances, forgiveness and grace and mercy and cooperation would have been the way to go. But in one instance, if we did not protect ourselves from future harm, it could come back to kill us and kill the whole tribe that we love. So, that's how our ancestors' brains were shaped generation on generation, and that's what we now carry in our heads. Not a brain wired for truth, but a brain wired for surviving and passing along our genes in a very uh, specialized context, the hunter-gatherer band. But there's a reason that the spiritual tradition has long taught us to access the inner divine, to find the Holy Spirit within, to center down until we find that place dip with, deep within us where we can get past the false self, where we can access the true self, because when we do, we are able to move beyond the limits of our natural selection brains.
And forgiveness versus revenge is a case, a strong case to be made for that elevated perspective. So if you go back to our lessons in the summer, I, when I was talking about the brain tricks, there was one of them that causes us to keep the dangerous outsider dangerous and outside. We saw how our brains filter out data, even though it's true data, that would allow us to build a bigger version of we. Brain tricks. Well, sure, maybe nine times out of ten, the dangerous outsider could be an ally, need not be an adversary, but if we don't allow the spiritual tradition to help us discern those times, because, again, instinct, because our brain tricks are ringing that alarm bell, what if this is the one out of ten time? What if this is the one that will kill me and my whole tribe? If all we have is the brain trick, we will never have a bigger version of we. Better to keep all ten in the category of dangerous outsider, better not to forgive, better not to show mercy, better to nurse my grudge, better to keep my icy withdrawal in place, better to savor the fantasies that play in my mind about how payback will go. But the thing is, that limited understanding is just not truth. It is a brain instinct, but it is not truth. We no longer live in the context in which our brains were shaped. We no longer live without legal protections, and we haven't for a long time. And consequently, the spiritual tradition has for a long time been calling us in text after text, sermon after sermon, song after song, telling us forgiveness is your friend. Forgiveness is a woefully underrated life strategy. Now, of course you have to survive. And of course you have to avoid future harm. But it turns out when we don't live in that specialized context where our brains were shaped, there are a lot of ways to avoid future harm. When we get creative and when we allow the spiritual practices to help us see beyond the chemicals that drive the revenge cycle, it is actually quite rare that resorting to that default brain strategy for self-protection is even the best way to be protected. In fact, revenge is actually one of the least effective tools we have for self-protection. We want to be protected, sure we do, but when all of our system resources focus on that chemical stimulus, it sucks up all the planning and all the creative imagining and all the alternative seeking that we could have done. When we grind through the night hours planning how we'll bring our adversary down a notch or two, Revenge sucks up all of our time, our energy, and our imagination. It's very costly. It pushes out a whole host of better ways that we could have gone, more effective ways, more productive ways, less, less harmful ways. Now next week, we'll talk about how revenge shortchanges us, and we'll talk about other creative ways to protect ourselves to get past this low-yield strategy. But for today, I want you to hear this. Revenge does have a purpose hardwired into our heads, and that is to protect us from future harm. And we must be protected from future harm. That purpose must be honored. But the thing is, revenge is just bad at the job. There are much better ways to protect ourselves, to avoid the danger into which revenge will inevitably throw us. Grace and mercy and forgiveness, when we understand it deeply, in the long run will prove to be much more effective. These are not the mamby-pamby, pie-in-the-sky ideals that we intuited when we didn't understand the mechanics behind them. 
We never will suffer uh, our need to be protected from harm. We'll never surrender that. It just turns out that in almost every instance, we're going to be better at assuring protection from future harm when we don't resort to revenge. All right, we'll pick up there next week. Uh, again, sorry that the recording didn't go live. Um, hope to hear from you next week. <laughs>